This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Auto insurance can all seem the same until it comes time to use it. So don't get stuck paying more for less coverage. Switch to USA Auto Insurance and you could start saving money in no time. Get a quote today. Restrictions apply. Hey y'all, welcome to The Nine, a black culture podcast brought to you by Blackness's biggest fans. I am Eric Eddings. And I am Brittany Luce. And today we have another installment of The Best of the Nod, as chosen by you, our listeners. Yes, in fact, this next episode is a favorite of one particular listener, Kiria. So Kiria is going to explain to you all what you're about to hear. Hi, guys. This is Kiria Traver calling in to say why I chose Chitlins at Bergdorf. I remember that was one of the first episodes of The Nod I had ever heard. I was still trying to feel it like, what is this show? All I knew is that this is a show about black culture, and I thought this could go anywhere and everywhere. And I don't know what the word is for it. Delighted, thrilled, elated, inspired, welcomed. As a black queer woman, I'm often having to filter black culture and movies and music through a lens of heteronormativity, of straight couples, of men and women do that, and this is how they are together. And this was an episode that was saying black culture and black queer culture are one and the same and worthy of an entire episode of this awesome new show. And I right away texted my partner and was like, you've got to listen to this episode of this new show that I just found. It is so good. You're going to love it. So that was the show that really first turned me out, and I've never looked back. So thank you all for what you do. Thank you for always being inclusive and intersectional and all them buzzwords. Um, when you talk about black culture, I feel a part of it, and I am so grateful for that. Thank you. So, Eric, if I tell you to name some famous fashion designers, like like what names come to mind? Ralph Lauren. I mean, Uniqlo. Un- uh, Uniqlo is a store, Sarah. not a person. <laughs> Zara is also a store, not a person. Uh, no, like, like, a, like Gu- uh, Gucci. Yeah. Gucci is a fashion designer. Uh, Yves Saint Laurent or, or, or YSL. Yeah. Um, True Religion. <laughs> uh, also a company and not, I don't not know. a person. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, Mark Jacobs. Yes, yes, yes. See, so I know, I you know things. It. You got it. You oh, cool. got it. So um, you know what this show is about, like, like the the uh, like the nod. Yes, I, I know. I'm I'm familiar. Right. So, what is something that you noticed that all the people that you just named had in common that may be at odds with the premise for the show? <laughs> they are. Not black. <laughs> I can say that definitively. Yes, 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 yes. Most of the big designers, people who are you know showing at Fashion Week and whose clothes are going to be in your fancy department stores and whatnot, most of those people are, in fact, white. Except for Kanye West. 
<laughs> That's a good point. Fashion used to not always be like that, though. Really? I'm. I don't know when this was. Actually, in in the early in the early 1970s, things were things were a little different. It was very diverse, and there were a lot of us designers at the time, and it was very open. You didn't feel discriminated against or anything. So that's a fashion designer by the name of Stephen Burroughs. Can you describe the scene for me a little bit? Like, what was it like to be in that world back then? (laughs) Work all day and party all night. (laughs) We all ran around together. Mm -hmm. Um, They would come to my house and steal all my clothes. And we would all go out at the same time and create quite a scene. So you guys were like a squad. You guys were like a super group. (laughs) Yeah. Each designer had that kind of group around them. They had someone who was the DJ, someone who was the plant guy. You said the plant? You said somebody who was the DJ, somebody who was the what? The plant guy, the florist. Oh. (laughs) Wait, so wait, why would you... You'd have flowers, like, in the studio? Everyone was into plants and flowers. Oh, I got you, I got you. Lord, I'm slow. And when Steven and his squad went out partying, like, they were easy to spot. I mean, these clothes were loud. Turquoise, hot pink, yellow, green, red, purple, all in the same outfit. So Steven's clothes were perfect for, like, you know, like, 1970s disco nightclub. And his aesthetic was, like, really popular at that time. I mean, actually, you know, the entire New York fashion scene had a lot of Black influence. Like, let me give you a picture of just how diverse the scene was back then. Are you familiar with Bergdorf Goodman, like the the fancy New York department store? Uh, In name only. (laughs) (laughs) I have never been inside. But I have heard that name and I passed it. So, yes, yes, I know that. So, would you categorize Bergdorf Goodman as being, like, well-known for its clothes made by Black people? I I would not, actually. (laughs) I was about to be, yes, yes, I would not. No, not at all. (laughs) Well, I talked to this fashion critic, Robin Gavon, and she told me about this fashion show in 1969 that Stephen and a bunch of other people from the fashion industry were at. And it was called... Basic Black at Bergdorf's. You had all these socialites showing up, and there was this jazz band where the members were dressed in dashikis, and (laughs) they served chitlins and collard greens. Wait, they served chitlins at at Bergdorf's? Yes, they did. My hand to God, and that just delighted me to no end because it was just so strange and... (laughs) I'm just kooky. I'm trying to picture something like that happening now, and I just, it's not coming together. <laughs> it's not coming together for me. You know, it was it was a fascinating little blip. That that sounds way more lit than I thought it was going to be. I don't know <laughs> what I was expecting in that moment, but I was not expecting dashikis and chillins. I don't know. This is, you know, you've never been to Bergdorf, so they could still be doing this now. It's possible. I mean, clearly I'm at the wrong spot. TJ Maxx has failed me in this moment. <laughs> Okay, so, I mean, like, that's all pretty wild, right? Like, New York had this, like, popping black fashion scene with these, like, really amazing designers like Steven. And they were putting on shows with Chitlins at Bergdorf Goodman. And that's what I want to tell you about. Like, this incredible moment when black people were, like, actually, like, an influential, important part of fashion. And how, at the peak of that time, 
they actually helped put American fashion on the map, but like worldwide. It all happened on one night in 1973, and it was called the Battle of Versailles. Okay, so in order for me to tell you this story, you first have to understand a little bit of where exactly the American designers were on the fashion food chain, like, internationally. Okay. So the French designers, like, they ruled the whole fashion world. And they took their fashion shows, like, very seriously. So, like, usually a show is totally silent. The models would come out, you know, very little expression, very stiff. And they would hold the number that would represent their outfit while they were walking up and down the runway. So it's not like America's Next Top Model. It's not like America's Next Top Model. Because that's good. Yeah, no. So, like, you know, the Americans were kind of, like, new to the whole fashion industry in the 1970s. Whereas the French, you know, they had a long history of dominating the fashion world. So you're familiar with the Palace of Versailles in France? Um, You've heard of it, maybe? I've heard of it. It's where, like, French royalty lived, like, way, way back. Like Marie Antoinette. Let them eat cake. Right, exactly. She was living in the Palace of Versailles. She was, like, a huge trendsetter. She was, like, in a way, the Rihanna of her time. Mm. And so, like, you know, as a result of her being who she was, Versailles kind of became, like, the epicenter of French fashion. Okay, so, like, now, like, the, the Palace of Versailles is, like, you know, one of France's, like, most popular tourist attractions. But in, like, the 70s, like, it was, like, long overdue for some major repairs. Like, it was just jacked up. And so the French were trying to raise money for this huge restoration project. And so when the Americans heard about this, they were like, mm, this is our big opportunity. Like, what if we organized a benefit? You know, we get the American designers and the French designers to come together and put on a fashion show at the Palace of Versailles. The French people can raise their little money, Mm -hmm. and the American people can finally level up. Get some shine. Exactly, get some shine. So the Americans brought up the idea to the French, and the French were, like, totally down. Here's our fashion expert again, Robin Gibbon. They did not particularly see it as any kind of competition Mm -hmm. because they didn't see the American designers as being competition Mm. for them. So they weren't even on their radar, basically. Yeah, I mean, it would be a little bit like Serena Williams doing a charity tennis match against, you know, the top player from the local college. Mm. It's this idea of, oh, great, you know, we'll raise some money, it'll be entertaining, but really, I'm going to win this match. It's no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) So each side was told to pick five designers. And Team France, I mean, they assembled an all-star team. They had Hubert de Givenchy, Emmanuel Ungaro, Pierre Cardin, Christian Dior, and Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, even if you think you've never heard some of these names before, I mean, like, go back and just listen to, like, every Lil' Kim song ever recorded. Like, three of five of those names are going to come up. Like 
But the Americans had nothing close to that kind of star power. See, like, for a really long time, America didn't really have any original, like, clothing designers. Basically, they would just, like, copy whatever came down the Paris runways and then bring that, like, bring those designs back and put them into American department stores. But then, like, starting in, like, the 60s, American fashion got, like, a lot more legit. Designers like Steven came on the scene and they started making like really interesting original designs like, you know, club clothes. His clothes didn't really offer a woman a lot of help, if you if you know what I mean. You know, there are a lot <laughs> yeah. of clothes that, you know, you put them on and maybe they help suck you in a little bit to make you feel a little bit more toned. Steven's clothes didn't do that. I mean, they sort of slithered over your body and revealed it. But still, even with all of these hip designers like Steven coming on the scene, the Americans couldn't really, like, shake their reputation as copycats. So they saw this show at the Palace of Versailles as, like, their chance to kind of, like, prove to the world, like, hey, we know what we're doing. We deserve to be here. So the Americans decided to put together a little dream team of their own. You know, and some of these designers are pretty famous now, but back then they were like really fresh to like the fashion world. They had Halston, Oscar de la Renta, Bill Blass, Anne Klein, and of course, Stephen Burroughs. Here's Robin again. You know, I mean, he was the hot, uh, buzzy, young designer, and he wasn't inspired by French fashion. He had no hang-ups about having to prove himself in comparison to French designers. It kind of sounds like Space Jam. Am I? Like... No, I mean no. It's kind of like the the, the Americans are kind of like the Looney Tunes. Like, yeah, like maybe the underdogs. This guy from Jersey is 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 Michael Jordan. Is Michael Jordan case. exactly? And then the French people are the monsters. I wasn't too up on who all the French were, so I only really knew about Saint Laurent. Yves Saint Laurent. See, Yves Saint Laurent didn't follow the rules of French fashion, which was appealing to Stephen. Stephen didn't care about French designers or society life or anything like that. He got the inspiration for his clothes from, like, his life, just being a young guy in New York City. And he was really inspired by all the Black models that were working in the industry back then. Black girls were dominant in New York at the time. Mm. They just were more exciting, more museful, I'd have to say museful. One of Stephen's muses was a woman named Beth Ann Hardison. What was the role of the model in fashion in the 70s? The fashion model, and especially the runway model, she was queen. I mean, she was the one who basically, you know, helped deliver what was being seen by the world. What was it like to be a black model during that time? It was good in a sense because it was all... Everything was happening. Everything was creative. Everything was wonderful at the time. So things could just happen naturally. And remember, we just came off the, you know, civil rights movement, too, with Black is Beautiful. That whole theme happened. So it was, it was to a point that you didn't think about, oh, that's a Black girl. Beth Ann was Stephen's house model and one of his assistants. And, I mean, I guess to give you, like, a picture of what she looks like, like, she was skinny. She had, like, this deep brown skin. She had these huge, like, brown doe eyes. And she had, um, like, really closely cropped hair, like a tiny little afro. It was so pretty. And, you know, before she became a model, like, Beth Ann is just 
a girl from Brooklyn. Like, she used to, like, street fight when she was a kid. Word. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she was like, she was like 9, 10, 11. Like, like, she used to get into street fights. But she also put a lot of energy into dance when she was a kid. And she knew how to serve a look. I was well known to be really a, a, a good entertaining model. Mm. And I always knew about the stage and how to, you know, win a crowd, you know. Because mm-hmm. as a child, I was a child tap dancer. And once I hit the, the runway, that became like home to me. So the way Beth Ann explains it, like, black girls kind of brought something special to the runway. Like, when a black girl was modeling, she wasn't just, like, coming down the runway like some sort of mannequin. Like, when a black girl was coming down the runway, those clothes were hers. So when it came down to us on that runway, the white girl had to work twice as hard as her black counterpart. <laughs> because the black girl, that was like freedom for her to be up on her stage. So the Americans picked 36 models to join them at Versailles. Ten of them were black, including Beth Ann. And, you know, now that they had their models, their dream team was ready to go. So they start preparing for the show. You know, they're renewing passports and choosing outfits and, you know, and they're getting excited. Like the anticipation of the whole night is building. And right before they're supposed to leave, they find out that Women's Wear Daily, which Eric is, is like basically like the Bible of fashion. So Women's Wear Daily, they've been writing these previews of the show and they kind of started playing up this rivalry between the French and the Americans. They started saying, it's the Battle of Versailles. <laughs> it went from a nice little church meeting, so to speak, to an all-out brawl in the Harlem bar. You know, everybody that was involved was getting a little nervous, like, what, 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 what do you mean? We didn't think we were going to battle. Yeah. We didn't think we were going to compete. You know, now the pressure's on. So the week of the show arrives, and the Americans get on a plane to Paris. And according to Robin, like, these models were, like, living it up. I mean, on the plane, they're, like, you know, smoking a little bit of weed, just trying to take the edge off. And for a lot of the models, like, this was their first time, you know, going to Europe or leaving the country. I mean, like, this was exciting. I mean, just imagine, you know, you're pulling up to the gates of, like, you know, one of the most beautiful, ostentatious, most famous European royal palaces. We were in a cold castle. There was no heat, and the design is sure fit, and they had to bring food in and toilet paper. There was, there was not even toilet paper for the girls in the bathroom. So right off the bat, there's a lot of drama. You know, the French, they were kind of running around the theater, and they were rehearsing with all of these different set pieces and costume changes, you know, and they ended up not leaving any time for the Americans to rehearse. So the American choreographer barely had any time to work with any of the models. So Stephen and a few other designers were actually forced to just, like, make up some last-minute choreography. Off the dome. Right, off the dome. <laughs> and to top it all off, there was a problem with the scenery. The American set designer totally screwed up. The set that he built didn't fit because he measured it in feet instead of meters. Fucking metric system, Exactly. And so the French people were looking at them, and they were like, y'all suck. They were very critical of of us during the week. Like, what are they doing? They didn't do very much. We Uh hadn't done anything like scenery like they had. Did they say these things to you guys, or did you just kind of hear whispers? they did. That's rude. <laughs> That's it's not... rude, but it's very French. 
So things are getting pretty tense at this point. But they could see my, you know, my calm. And they were counting. They kept saying they were counting me, which puts more pressure. I knew that what we had was good for all I knew. Mm -hmm. But you don't know what the other guy has, but you know that whatever they've always had has always been brilliant. It's not looking good at this point. (laughs) It's not looking good. All right, so Team America has no set, no moves, and no time whatsoever to impress a bunch of stuffy French people. How in the hell are they going to pull this off? You will find out right after the break. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Okay, so to set the scene, it's November 28th, 1973. It's the evening of the Americans' big debut. It was actually quite a sort of romantic and dramatic night um, because there was this very light snowfall. And as our fashion expert, Robin Gavon, was telling me, all these lavishly dressed, high society guests are like basically just gliding into this beautiful theater. The pathway leading through the courtyard and and to the theater, I mean, it was lined with these men wearing sort of the full livery of the, you know, the red jackets and the powdered wigs. All the women were wearing designer gowns from people like Madame Grey and Saint Laurent and there were incredible jewels that a lot of these women, you know, had pulled out of the vault. Some of them were wearing tiaras. I mean, they really pulled out the stops. So in the audience, you've got a ton of European superstars, like the Princess of Monaco, you know, like Princess Grace, like she was there. But then it's time for the show to start. So the curtains open and the French are up first. And they've got like a live orchestra and like really elaborate sets. It all starts with this Cinderella theme and there's this giant pumpkin carriage on stage. They had performance after performance after performance after performance. I thought they were gonna shoot somebody out of a cannon after a while. (laughs) It was so much going on. We were like, whoa. It was kind of like a Broadway show, like very over the top. And even though the show itself was over the top, like the models were a little more subtle. Like they were kind of more like statues in motion, just like showcasing the clothes instead of like characters. I mean, and they had this show planned out to a T. Like they had Josephine Baker come out and sing this song about how much she loved France and France was her country forever. That's shade because Josephine Baker is actually American. Yes. Like, that's a little dig. Even I, I see that. I thought was shady, that. too. So, that was their big closer. 
The whole show overall lasted for almost two hours. And there was an intermission, the sort of blissfully boozy intermission, which had them close to, you know, midnight, practically. And then it was the Americans' turn to perform. So the Americans, they didn't have a live orchestra. Their music was on tape, and it was all real to real. Once you turned it on, that was it. And so there were built-in pauses to account for when one designer's show would end and the next designer's presentation would begin. But if anything was off, you know, if models failed to walk out at precisely the right moment, you could end up with everything kind of going awry. So one of the other American designers goes first, and thankfully, none of her models messed up the music cues. And then it was Steven's turn. What did you tell them in terms of how to walk, like how to move down the runway? Uh, I didn't have to tell them anything. <laughs> they knew <laughs> that's why they were there, because of the way they walked. How did they walk? Oh, strong, confident, sexy, having fun, smiling. You just would send out girls one by one, and then all the girls walked forward to the stage front and start voguing. Of course, we didn't call it voguing then. It was just posing. Lift your arms and throw your hip out. It's just showing off in front of a group of people. So Steven's models are wearing his signature bright body-hugging clothes. And they were twirling and voguing and posing and jutting out their hips. I mean, it could have been the club. And one of the last models out was Beth Ann Hardison. This is the Brooklyn girl, the tap dancer, the street fighter. And she is wearing this, like, gorgeous, like, sun yellow gown. Like, it reaches down to the floor, and it extends, like, way, way back. It has this long, long train. And it's not like, you know, Stephen's usual jersey fabric. Like, this is, like, silk and it's woven. Like, it kind of has this, like, a couture feel, but, like, it's something completely new. She was ready to make a grand entrance. Unlike the classical music that the French used, the Americans made the decision to, like, bring in regular people music, like the music of the moment, like stuff you'd hear at the club. Songs like the Creative Source cover of the famous Bill Withers song, who is he and what is he to you? And I came down, coming down fierce. I came down to win. I came down to to let them know that we were here. And I, I mean, in every step I took, I, I rumbled. I could hear a drum, the beat of the, it was almost like I could hear percussion in the music. And I used that percussion that way I walked. I could hear the melody now in my head, you know, and walking to it. In Stephen's presentation, we are, all our dresses were done with trains. And he had a pinky holder where we had it on our fingers when we walked. And by the time I got to the end of the stage, I threw mine down and stared at the audience until I wouldn't move until they felt the experience. I was shaking. Tears were in my eyes when I stood there, but I knew the purpose. 
something went wrong but then it turned out it was applause it was they were completely freaked out and that's when they started to stomp their feet and you know bravo 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 And then they said, get Steven, get Steven. And Steven comes running over, and I'm staring the crowd down. And it was, it was quite something. The French using so uptight. Uh, it was wild. We didn't think anything that could happen after that that would be as great as that moment. And believe me, we knew that we then had not come to fail. We had come to win, and we, we, we were winning. The French show took two hours. Our show took 37 minutes, and we killed them. Josephine Baker found Beth Ann Hardison, and she was like, I want to come backstage and meet the girls. Beth, you have to take me back. You have to take me backstage. (laughs) And I took her backstage to meet the girls, and of course the girls died. They were so inspired that they met Joe Baker. And Josephine was saying, oh, my God, this is I'm so proud of everyone, because she's originally American Mm -hmm. and of color. And to see these girls do what they did and how, how they were showcased, it meant everything. So the Americans, they've won back Josephine Baker, and they've shown the French that they're not just copycats, that, you know, they actually have something original to bring to the table. How did you feel after the show? Triumphant. Because Saint Laurent told me I made beautiful clothes. What did that mean to you, Yves Saint Laurent telling you that you made beautiful clothes? It made my trip. <laughs> So if you're thinking about it like a battle, then it seems like the Americans won. So, like, what did you notice as far as immediate responses? Like, how was it talked about in the media? It wasn't. There may have been a little blurb in uh, women's wear, the society page, but um, that's about as far as it went. It was a great thing that we went over and did it and then we came back they said yay yay right on clap clap and then you went back to your job damn yeah that's rough man it is rough but slowly like in the months after that all of a sudden these black models start working where in yes. in france or in a- in europe they had never seen so many black girls in one place at same time performing, especially in the fashion show. There were a lot of girls who became like a muses for European designers, like Givenchy. Yeah. After he saw those girls at the Versailles show, he like started booking them for his shows. He had an entire like group. They called it a cabine. Mm-hmm. His whole cabine was like black girls. Yeah, because they had the sauce. Because they had the sauce. So like they started getting work. And then after that, you know, you have models like Iman. I know I'm on. Yeah. Yes, Beverly Johnson, mm. Naomi Campbell, Veronica Webb, and Beth Ann. Like she got a lot more work after the Battle of Versailles. The model of color was recognized in a proper way. So there's a lot that happened from that show that was more than you know just going and winning and walking away. And that's deep, considering like not many people actually knew that this thing happened. Exactly. But the thing is, you know, that bump in popularity. It only lasted until, like, the mid-90s. 
like fashion is all about trends. And for a while, black models were like all the rage. But then, you know, in the 90s, the Eastern European look starts to become more popular. And like heroin chic, which is basically just a lot of skinny white people. And they they openly called it heroin chic? It was called heroin chic, yeah. Mm, Questionable. Yeah, that became like the trendy thing. And like the black cool look, it kind of fell out of style. Wait, so what, like, but what happened to Stephen Burroughs? So Stephen Burroughs, you know, he's still designing now, but the height of his career, like, pretty much happened in the 70s. That kind of sucks. He seemed like he was on track to be, like, the man. Yeah. I mean, the thing that, that really gets me is, like, this show, like, The Battle of Versailles, like, it was it was huge, you know? So you would think that, like, a whole bunch of other black designers would come up after him. Do you know what I mean? And also be able to make it really big. But, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, there are quite a few black designers that are, you know, making high fashion and doing really amazing things. But, like, there aren't as many as I think that there should be that have really big careers. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no there's no one having, like, that Battle of Versailles moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's no chitlins at Bergdorf's. Yeah, and that's a travesty. <laughs> I'm serious. The 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 version of the fashion industry that existed in the like 60s and 70s as you described it sounds really fucking cool. You know, it's it's rare to it's rare to be able to look to like look far in the past and like long for the opportunities <laughs> of your as a black person. Yeah. That's not really that's not really our birthright. Yeah. But black people had it had it halfway decent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And and uh I find myself in a very peculiar position as a black person of wishing for the past. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or wishing for some of the sweetness of the past. And that is it's weird. Yeah. I agree. I wanna go back to that. And I wanna go back to chitlins and jazz bands. Maybe we should bring some to Burgers. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I thought this was... This, this, is, where, this is where it's supposed to be. Do you know be. your history? Exactly. <laughs> Let me tell you a little story. Coming up, another listener choice about a trailblazer you may not know about, but definitely, definitely should. Okay, so, mental picture time. The year is 1957, and you're seated at the Apollo Theater up in Harlem, and the show's about to start. You know, the orchestra in the pit is tuning up, and the lights are starting to dim, and everyone in the audience is hushed and dressed to impress. So the band starts, and the lights come up, and suddenly the entire stage is populated with 25 of the most dazzling divas that you have ever seen in your life. You know, in all different shapes and sizes and colors. I mean, you know, they have headdresses with feathers and crystals and their cleavage is hiked up high. And their eyebrow arches are like damn near touching heaven. And then the announcer, who's who's kind of like the anchor for the show, makes an entrance. Introducing the world's most unusual show. 
And now the toolbox overture with Ned Harvey and his orchestra. And he's tall and in a beautiful sun-cut tuxedo. I mean, like, whatever people think when they hear the word debonair, like, he is it. And he's got this rich, baritone voice that just sails out over the crowd. And he leads the chorus of showgirls into the show's signature song. You're watching the Jewel Box Review. And like any other show at the Apollo, this is top of the line. But it's just a little different than their usual shows. The show is billed as 25 men and one girl. So most of the people on stage are impersonating women. And the audience is supposed to spend the show figuring out who the quote-unquote real girl is. Toward the end of the show, it's dramatically revealed that none of the people high-kicking in dresses was the real girl. It was actually the smooth baritone in the tuxedo. Stormy DeLavier. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I'm Brittany Luce. Eric is out this week reporting other stories, but I am here to tell you about this woman, Stormy DeLavier. I kind of became obsessed with Stormy a while ago when I came across her photo randomly. It was this glamorous black and white photo, probably from the 1950s, and in it was a slim black woman in a tuxedo. And she had short, platinum blonde hair. It was, it was styled kind of in a conch, and, and she had smooth, pale skin and this haunting gaze that just drew me in. You know, at the time, I didn't know anything about Stormy's life as the leader of the Jewel Box Review. In fact, I didn't know anything about her life. All I knew is that there was this, this poise, this presence emanating from that photo. She seemed powerful and important, and she gave off the charisma of a Hollywood star, but I'd never heard of her before. So I started digging. And I really had to dig. There are so few records of her and not a lot of people who know her whole life story. But the more I learned, the more astounding it seemed that I didn't know who she was. Everyone needs to know about this woman. And today, I'm going to tell you all about her and how she moved on from a tough Southern upbringing to become a glamorous drag performer and a vigilante defender of the defenseless. A true American hero. So in order for me to tell you this story, we we, got to go back, like way back to 1920 and all the way down to New Orleans, Louisiana. That's where our hero, Stormy DeLavier, was born on December 24th to a white father and a black mother. Stormy was born mixed race in the Deep South. She was not issued a birth certificate. This is Stormy's friend of over 25 years, Lisa Canistrasi. Over the years, Stormy shared a lot with Lisa. So she always identified as black because she was very close with her mom. You know, being mixed race, she was taunted by the white kids. She was taunted by the black kids. She was always swimming upriver. And, uh, you know, she, she, was, she was attacked multiple times, almost near death when she was a kid, like beaten to a pulp. Here's how Stormy described her childhood in a story from a 2009 interview. Because some of the things that they did to people that were mixed blood, you have to remember my mother was black and I have a white face. 
Well, I'm crippled in one, one leg because it took me years to get the brace off my leg. I've got a big scar here where they left me hanging on a fence by one leg. But having a white father and a black mother was not the only way Stormy knew she was different. She knew she wasn't attracted to men. And, uh, but, you know, she, you, could, you couldn't really be out. Uh, you, you'd probably, she probably would have been murdered. And so she needed to leave the South and she moved to Chicago. And she went there as a woman who dressed like a man. Chicago gave Stormy a fresh start. She lived as a straight man during that time. You see, being a masculine-presenting queer woman was dangerous and even illegal in a lot of places. But living as a straight man let Stormy present herself how she wanted. And she looked good. Here's Lisa again. I mean, my story was gorgeous. I mean, I don't think she looked like James Dean, but I think she had the swagger of James Dean. Like, she had that natural, just quiet, sexy look. She was in her 20s now. She wasn't getting bullied and harassed anymore. She got a shot at a normal life. She even got a boo. She had a beautiful, beautiful partner. Her name was Diana, and Diana was a dancer. And Diana would have her girlfriends over the house, and they would play cards in the kitchen, and Stormy would have her friends over, and they would hang out in the den and drink brandy and smoke cigars. It was like that. Chicago also gave Stormy a chance to really come into her own as a singer. You see, she had always loved performing, and she sang a lot growing up in New Orleans, but back then she had to do it in a sensible dress, a curl bob, string of pearls, you know, women's clothing. But being in Chicago so far from home gave her the freedom to tap into the look that would eventually make her famous. She went from looking like a long-lost Andrew's sister to wearing a long, slim suit, close-cropped hair, and and she had this 10-mile stare that, so I have been told, used to knock the ladies dead. And it was looking like this that Stormy took her act on the road. In her travels, Stormy met two men who would change her life forever. Their names were Doc Benner and Danny Brown, and they were the creators of the Jewel Box Review. They'd built something of a small empire around their traveling drag reviews in the 30s and 40s. And they played clubs in Miami, Cleveland, Detroit. They played all over the country. Danny and Doc wanted to elevate what they called the art of female impersonation. They wanted to bring it out of sort of the burlesque vaudeville scene and take it to like, you know, like the big stage. And in Stormy, they basically found the perfect MC. Stormy joined the show as MC and kind of their de facto musical director in 1955. And she stayed for 14 years. And over that time, Stormy became a hit. Here's Stormy's friend Lisa again. She was a, one of a, a favorite subjects for Diana Arbus, the photographer. So Diana took some really amazing shots of her. Stormy would talk about her affiliations with um, Dinah Washington. You know, some of the old singers, Nina Simone. Because um, she traveled in those circles, you know, those sophisticated um, African-American circles. And, you know, she was, she was highly regarded, you know, as, as she was royalty, you know? She was royalty. 
The show was a huge success, and it played all over, you know, at big-name theaters and also Chitlin Circuit venues, including the Apollo Theater, where they played several times a year. First and foremost, the Jewelbox Review was a top-notch performance project. That's number one. Everything about it, the set, the costumes, and the performers were top-notch. This is Marita Dunn. She's, like, almost hyperactive. And she's tall, and she's, like, oozing with style. She used to be a model. And she saw the Jewel Box Review, like, quite a few times as a young girl growing up in Harlem. And to this day, she has nothing but praise for the show. No amount of money was spared in making that Jewel Box Review. I mean, it was top of it. If it needed a mink coat, it had a mink coat. If it needed a zebra, it had a zebra. What about the singing and the dancing? We're talking about the Jewel Box Review. You wasn't going to get if you couldn't sing or dance. They were ladies of gorgeous dimensions. The way you try to see now, like the RuPaul's of now, they were then. At one point in our talk, I pulled out a few old photographs just to jog her memory. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Describe to me uh, the photo. Ah, look at her. Look at what she has on. Oh, yeah. No, I see there's there's a drag performer right in the center and with look, a look huge the, headdress. This is beautiful. Look it's at like, everything. It's not just the headdress. Look at the shoes. Look at the whole outfit. Take a good look. And is this as you remember it? Oh, yes. Definitely. That's why I was excited. Because <laughs> <laughs> I came from fashion, so if you, if you can still excite me, you're good. <laughs> okay, so... Call me country, but when I learned about this, I was like, what? Like, there's a whole generation of baby boomers whose parents took them to a Sunday matinee drag show as a family activity? I needed to know how this could have been acceptable, given what we know about how people treat LGBT people to this day. So I called up this guy. My name is John Reddick. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia, educated, Ohio State. John is a Harlem historian, and he says that playing with gender is about as old as time for Black folks. One of the main performers at the Apollo was this comedian named um, Moms Mabley, who was gay. And when you see her personal picture, she dressed like a man. And so everyone within the, her, her peer group knew she was gay. But he says that that doesn't mean that the 50s and the 60s were a more accepting time for queer Black people than we remember. It was fine on the stage, but once they left the theater, it was a different story. Technically, uh, those performers could not go on the street dressed gender crossing. They could get arrested. I think into the 60s or, or so they could get arrested. So, you know, it had to be sort of set in theater. You know, in the end, it's like judged performance. You know, it's the mass that's being played up, not really the, the sexuality. It's like a masquerade ball or whatever, you know, the idea that you're going to be this other, whatever. It's knowing that, you know, under this is, is a man or a woman. But even if it was just performance, sanitized from sexuality, the Jewel Box Review gave Stormy a place to be herself. And the 50s and 60s were a pretty happy time for her. She traveled all over the country performing for adoring audiences as herself. She was living in New York City. She had stopped pretending to be a straight man. And not only did she have the love of Diana, her girlfriend, but she had the love and respect of her castmates, many of whom were guys 10 or 20 years her junior. She referred to them as her boys. 
It was like a chosen family, and she considered herself the one who protected that family. Here's Stormy again talking about her former castmates. They were nice young men, and they were my friends. They did everything I asked them to do. They showed me great respect, and I respected them as performers and as human beings. Stormy had this little corner of the world set up the way she wanted. You know, like this this safe, warm little space for black or queer or creative people who, you know, kind of like her, they never quite fit in anywhere else. But then something happened, something that made her realize she needed to protect that little world. That is coming up after the break. On June 28, 1969, Stormy was at the Stonewall Inn, hanging with some friends. The Stonewall was a popular West Village bar and also an unofficial community meeting place for young queer folks in New York at that time. That night, police raided the bar. Now, a raid in a gay hangout wasn't unusual for that time. It was illegal to cross-dress and illegal for gay people to gather in public. And cops would target certain bars looking for anyone breaking those laws. You know, they'd kick people out, they'd take their liquor, and look on their IDs to see whether their listed gender matched the way that they were dressed. It was humiliating and subhuman treatment, but it was the law back then. But this night was different. After years of just complying with the usual hassling and arrests, Folks got pissed. They refused to hand over their IDs. The people who the cops had to let go, they decided to stick around. And when the police started grabbing people and forcing them out of the bar, they fought back. Stonewall was a turning point in the LGBT rights movement. People were speaking up, saying, you know, it's not enough to eke out an existence in the margins, in the theater or in the bar scene. They wanted full equality. A lot of people say that Stormy threw the first punch at Stonewall. Of course, LGBT history is rarely recorded, and Stormy herself was pretty coy about the whole thing. But according to pretty much everyone I talked to, punching a cop for hassling her friends is exactly the type of person that Stormy was. Here's Lisa, Stormy's friend from earlier in the show. You know, I think her... Her experiences as a young person and being, you know, beat up and being not accepted for who, who she was, I think all that lived inside her. And she turned it around to protect the community. Like, she she recycled it, all that anger, you know, when she used it for good. 1969 was a big year of change for Stormy. We can't say for sure if there's a correlation between these two events, but... About two months after Stonewall, Stormy quit the Jewel Box Review. That same year, she also lost the love of her life. Her partner of over 25 years, Diana. I know that, that Diana's death devastated her. She always holds, carried a picture of her in her wallet. Mm-hmm. She was beautiful, beautiful woman. So Stormy is no longer touring with the Jewel Box Review. She's angry at the way her community is being treated, and she's heartbroken. And this is when she enters a phase of her life where her own happy world isn't enough. She wants to take that feeling of love and protection that she has for her own community 
and bring it to the streets. So she joins an advocacy organization for LGBT rights, and she decides to become a bodyguard. During the day, she watches over rich New York families, but at night, she was watching out for her own. She worked the door at lesbian and gay bars with an iron fist and a pistol on her hip. Here's some footage of her from that period, outside a lesbian bar called The Cubby Hole. No, guys, that isn't a fishbowl. Keep walking. Keep walking. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, all right, all right, all right. No problems, guys. No problems. Okay, okay, fine. Just keep walking. You know, I've got enough problems tonight. Keep walking. Stormy continued to protect patrons of lesbian and gay bars for over 30 years. She laid down the law, and she was known for watching out for younger queer women. She became known as kind of a cowboy of the West Village. Again, here's Stormy's friend, Lisa Canastrasi. Don't you mess with my baby girls. I mean, that's what she would say. And she would be like, trust me, you want to keep walking and put her hand on her hip. Sometimes she would follow them up the block. (laughs) I mean, she was amazing. So here's the thing about Lisa. She was not only Stormy's good friend. They were actually co-workers for a while. They met in 1985 when they were both working at the cubbyhole. Lisa was just a college student tending bar to make some money. I worked Monday night, which is historically the slowest night in the bar business. And uh, my shift was 9 to 4. And uh, right around 1 in the morning, they would be empty till 4. So that's three hours. Mm. I would study my, my psychology uh, stuff for St. John's. And uh, I would take little breaks. Um, and then Stormy and I would just chit-chat. And we just bonded. I mean, it was really quite instant. We just liked each other right away. Working those long nights together, Lisa and Stormy forged a fast friendship, despite their 44-year age gap. For years, the cubbyhole was Stormy's top gig. And when it closed in 1990, Lisa decided to buy the bar herself. She opened it one year later as Henrietta Hudson. And when it came time to staff up, she knew just who to call. Stormy worked for me immediately. I assembled an incredible staff, like the, the creme de la creme of the downtown gay scene. Stormy worked the door at Henrietta Hudson into her late 70s. It was her steadiest paycheck. But even after she formally retired, Lisa kept paying her. I asked her why. I knew she needed the money, and she deserved it, and she's my friend, and I do a lot of fundraising and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with just, instead of fundraising for an organization, just directly give somebody money who's amazing, who does a lot for the community. The fact that Lisa kept paying Stormy even after she stopped working there, it touched me. It was such a simple gesture, but something so big at the same time. You know, Stormy would come in on a Sunday night. She'd sit at the bar, get a vodka rocks, and, you know, she'd get an envelope. It was kind of like she was collecting a pension. Stormy kept coming into Henrietta Hudson until about 2010. Then she stopped coming. She was getting older and tended to stay closer to home. She and Lisa fell out of touch. And then Lisa got some news. Stormy had fallen and broken a bone, and because she had no listed blood relatives, she was taken under the care of the state. And she was suffering from dementia. One of Stormy's neighbors, a woman named Michelle Zalapani, reached out to Lisa and a bunch of other people in the bar scene that Stormy knew. She set up a meeting to try to figure out how they could help her. 
there were about 12, maybe 14 people. And we got together and we talked about the situation. I didn't see anything solution-based. I didn't really see that anybody was looking for a solution. They were just kind of in the problem. But um, we were slated to meet the next week and come back with some, you know, some something. Two people showed up. It was me and Michelle, who I didn't know. I never knew her. But it was a fucking heartache that nobody came to the second meeting. No one else was stepping up, so Lisa and Michelle stepped in. They met with a lawyer, a state congressman, and a judge, and won the right to be Stormy's legal guardians. And their first order of business? They put Stormy up in the Cadillac of nursing homes so she could finish out her days in comfort. It was a, be- it was a utopian idea uh, of this uh, an assisted living facility for people who didn't have a lot of money that showed them respect and that was pretty and that was clean and had good food and activities and everybody was so loving. They knew Stormy's backstory. They were intrigued. After all those years of fighting, she was safe, she was comfortable, and she was being taken care of the same way she had taken care of others her whole life. Stormy is somebody for whom life was really hard. From the day she was born, she was labeled illegitimate. And it's a label that could have followed her throughout her entire life, and it could have made her bitter. But neither one of those things happened. It was touching and it was beautiful how at the end of Stormy's life, you know, the people that she had protected for so long came back to protect her. She had given out so much love over the course of her life. It really, it really came back as a comfort to her in the end. That is, that's the lesson to me that, of her life. That's like the lesson that her life teaches. You could pull out a gun on some people. You could pack a pistol. You could, but you could also be a loving person. And Stormy was just, she was so brave. Like she, she didn't feel the need to fulfill anybody's ideas about, you know, what she should look like or how she should dress or who she should be. You know, she fought a lot of battles and she put up with a lot of shit. And, you know, unless you really dig, you're not really going to find this woman's story. The nursing home where she was living was maybe a 10-minute walk from my apartment. And I didn't know her. Um, she, she died before I even learned who she was. You know, this is somebody who should have had ticker tape parades. There should be streets named after her. But if I hadn't have happened to see her face, her glamorous face, in the corner of my computer screen, I, I, I would never even have gone down this path. Lavier died on May 24, 2014, at the ripe old age of 93. These episodes were produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings, Kate Parkinson Morgan, James T. Green, and Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. 
We are edited by Emmanuel Barry, Jorge Just, and Annie Rose Strasser. Additional editing help with today's stories from Alex Bloomberg, Sarah Geis, Jordan Barnes, Pat Walters, and Morgan Jerkins. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Our theme music is by Khalid B. For additional music in the show, check the show notes.